The talk, uh, I called it the Buddha archetype. I knew what I meant when I called it that title, but then uh, a few days ago I looked it up in the Buddha archetype in the dictionary and I realised it's not what I meant to say. And somebody has come from quite a long way because they thought I'd be talking about the Buddha from a Jungian perspective, but I'm very sorry about that, I won't be. Um, What I meant to say was uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the Buddha as a mystery, in a way. Um, a better title might have been The Cosmic Buddha, or The Buddha Principle, or even The Mythical Buddha. Or you could even say uh, The Buddha After He Died. This, you could say this is a talk about the Buddha after he died, after the Parinirvana. And it's going to be quite a relaxed talk, that's why I'm sitting down, not standing up. And it's going to be quite a devotional talk. I haven't really got any points I want to make, uh, any kind of wisdom points or anything. I just want to try to evoke the Buddha from various texts. (laughs) So I probably am going to read from every one of these texts, so that's just to warn you. It's not going to be a long talk, though, because I'm not going to say very much in between. I'm simply going to read some texts uh, that describe the Buddha in various different ways. Some of them you'll be quite familiar with. Some of them might be a bit shocking um, because the Buddhist tradition is uh, strange and wonderful. And uh, the Buddha isn't always depicted in these texts in the way that we as modern Westerners would perhaps like him to be depicted. Uh, My idea of the Buddha is a human being who gained enlightenment. That's it. And you wouldn't recognise him if you walked down the street. Uh, But that's not the way uh, many Eastern Buddhists see the Buddha. They see him in a very, very much different way. And so I'm just going to read some texts to give you an idea of some of the ways that some Eastern Buddhists, and these are all what are called canonical texts. Every one of them are canonical texts. So supposedly the word of the Buddha, uh, although I'm sure many of them aren't, to be honest. But they all give a, um, they give uh, ways of looking at the Buddha which I think are very interesting. Some of which you may well like and others you may not like. And that would be interesting, I think. To, you might even ask yourself, Why don't I like this way of looking at the Buddha? Why don't I want to see the Buddha in that kind of way? So I'm going to start with the Pali Canon, the ancient texts. And I'm going to begin with the Maha Parinibbana Sutta, which is the sutta, the text, the discourse uh, that records the Buddha's last days on earth before he entered Parinibbana. Buddhists don't often say that the Buddha died they say that he entered Parinirvana. Uh, now, the, here's a distinction here between Nirvana and Parinirvana. I don't know if you know about that distinction, but Nirvana is enlightenment, but with residue. Um, when, you're, when you gain enlightenment in this life, and I say when, I'm, I mean if, <laughs> if and when, you gain enlightenment. When one gains enlightenment in this life, you've still got the body, so there's still suffering involved, yeah? Because even a Buddha can get a headache. Even a Buddha can get, get ill and die, as, we, as happened with his own life. Um, but when, when you enter into Parinirvana at death, you enter Nirvana without residue. There's no residue of the body. So they're two distinct <coughs> states. But uh, what happened is the Buddha's walking around India teaching. And he's old now. He's 80 years old. And he says to his uh, close companion, Ananda, Ananda, I am now old, worn out, venerable, one who has traversed life's path. I have reached the term of life, which is 80. Just as an old cart is made to go by being held together with straps, so the Tathagata's body, Tathagata is another word for the Buddha, The Tathagata's body is kept going by being strapped up. So, there's the human Buddha. 
This is the Buddha that I like, the human Buddha, kind of an ordinary person, except he's gained enlightenment. He's old, he knows he's going to die, he's well aware of that fact, and he's talking about it. So you imagine, he's talking about like being an old cart that's strapped up. So you can imagine someone who's a bit um, wasted in a way, someone who's old, they've more or less had it on the physical level, and they're going to die. But then a few pages later, and I think maybe a few days later in real time, um, somebody called Pukusa, who was a devotee of the Buddha, came and gave the Buddha, he wanted to give the Buddha something, so he gave him two sets of cloth for robes, but they were gold, gold cloths. So the Buddha accepted them and gave one to Ananda, and he put his gold cloth on. But soon after Pukusa had gone, Ananda... I'll read, I'll read the text. Ananda, having arranged one set of the golden robes on the body of the Lord, that's the Buddha, observed that against the Lord's body it appeared dulled. So the gold robe appeared dull against the Buddha's body. And he said, It is wonderful, Lord, it is marvellous, how clear and bright the Lord's skin appears. It looks even brighter than the golden robes, in which it is clothed. And the Buddha answers, Just so, Ananda, there are two occasions on which the Tathagata's skin appears especially clear and bright. Which are they? One is the night in which the Tathagata gains supreme enlightenment, Nirvana. The other is the night when he attains the Nibbana element without remainder at his final passing Pavanivana on his death. On these two occasions, the Tathagata's skin appears especially clear and bright. So I find that interesting that the, you know, one minute the Buddha's saying that his body is old and worn out, it's like a cart strapped together. And then, I don't know how long it was after that, but very soon after that, um, the Buddha's body is shining gold. And why is it shining gold? Because he's just about to die. He's just about to gain power nirvana. So there are those two occasions when the Buddha's body shines gold, at nirvana and power nirvana. And I think this is interesting because you could say that... Now, I'll leave that point till later, I think. I think we'll just leave that there. And we're going to go on to... Another couple of, a few descriptions of the Buddha in this kind of vein. Because I find them really very beautiful. First one is, I'm going to read, is from a text called the Vimnakirti Nidesha. And it's the first chapter. And the Buddha is at, in Amrapali's park, just outside of the city of Vaishali. He's just staying there for a short while. And he's surrounded, this is a Mahayana text, so he's surrounded by um, 8,000 bhikshus, all of them arahants, all of them enlightened. 32,000 bodhisattvas. And then hundreds of thousands of non-human beings, gods, devas, yakshas, nagas, gaudas. And also what's called the fourfold community, monks, nuns, laymen and lay women. So you get this idea of this incredibly large gathering, assembly, some of them no doubt flying in the air. And in the midst of it, it says, the Lord Buddha, thus surrounded and venerated by these multitudes of many hundreds of thousands <coughs> of living beings, sat upon a majestic lion throne and began to teach the Dharma, dominating all the multitudes, just as Sumeru, the king of mountains, looms high over the oceans, the Lord Buddha shone, radiated and glittered as he sat upon his magnificent lion throne. This is quite a wonderful description, that, isn't it? Very kingly, very regal. The Lord Buddha shone, radiated and glittered as he sat upon his magnificent lion throne. And this is the Buddha as seen from the point of view of the Mahayana. Whereas the early text, the Buddha, there are only two occasions when the Buddha lo looks like this. For the Mahayana, the Buddha was always 
golden in colour, shining, glittering, radiating light. And there's another text. In fact, the text is called The Sutra of Golden Light. I think that's the next one I'm going to read to you. Yeah. (coughs) Indian text, Mahayana. (coughs) So listen to this for a description of the Buddha. I worship the Buddhas, who are like oceans of virtues, mountains gleaming with the colour of gold like Sumeru. I go for refuge to those Buddhas, and with my head I bow down to all those Buddhas. Each one is gold-coloured, shining like pure gold. He has fine eyes, pure and faultless like beryl. He is a mine blazing with glory, splendour and fame. He is a Buddha sun, removing the obscurity of darkness with his rays of compassion. He is very flawless, very brilliant, with very gleaming limbs. He is a fully enlightened sun. His limbs are as prominent as pure gold. He refreshes the blazing fire of those whose minds are consumed by the fire of impurities with the sage's meshes of moonbeams. His sense organs are beautiful with the 32 excellent major marks, his members greatly gleaming with the very brilliant minor marks, with meshes of beams full of glory, merits, splendour and brilliance. He stands amid the darkness like the sun in the three worlds. There's a number of things to just point out about this. One is that he's uh, he's, um, compared to the sun. The Buddha is the sun. This isn't the first time. Way back in the ancient Pali texts, there's there's a text that uh, says the Buddha is like the sun. But this is a really very beautiful description of shining, pure, golden light, isn't it? And uh, another little thing here is that uh, he talks, or the writer of this text, whoever it is, talks about all those Buddhas, not just the Buddha. I go for refuge to those Buddhas with my head. I bow down to all those Buddhas. So in the Mahayana, you don't just get one Buddha, you get many Buddhas. In the ancient text, you just got the one Buddha. You can only have one Buddha at a time in the ancient Pali texts. There are Buddhas going way back in the past and there will be Buddhas in the future and the next Buddha is going to be called Maitreya. But you can only have one Buddha at a time. But when the Mahayana came along, as it were, or started up, they had this idea of Buddhas existing in different Buddha fields or Buddha regions all over the universe. So you've got this idea of golden Buddhas like suns all over the universe shining out with this beautiful um, phrase, Meshes of beams. This is quite wonderful, isn't it? Beams coming from different directions and meshing. Meshing, meshes of moonbeams. Really very beautiful. And the other little thing to mention, when uh, he's talking about his sense organs, he talks about the 32 excellent major marks and then there are the very brilliant minor marks. There are 80 minor marks. This is, Buddhism has taken this on from the Hindu tradition where the, uh, the Maha Purusha, the sometimes it's called the Superman, um, has 32 major marks. They're, they're quite strange. They're quite a quite strange cultural phenomenon, really. Um, for instance, one of the things the, the Buddha can do is he can cover the whole of his face with his tongue. I think that's right. And um, various other things, which are quite odd. If, if you painted all these 32 major marks and the... 80 minor marks, it would be very, very strange. But these are seen as very symbolic in the ancient Indian traditions. So here you've got um, the Buddha as being a kind of a shining cosmic being. And that's why, in a way, I wish I'd have called this talk the Cosmic Buddha. Because here, in this talk, I don't actually know what um, Diane Andy said. I know she was going to talk about the Buddha being human and more than human. And in a way, this talk is about the Buddha being more than human. It's seeing the Buddha in a very different way. 
And so what does it mean for a Buddha to be like this, to be golden, to be shining out like the sun, to be very beautiful? And these beams coming towards us, they, they clean us of our impurities and so on. They purify us. What does that actually mean? And um, the way I see it, and I'll talk a bit more about this at the end of the talk, the way I see it is uh, this is what the Buddha really looks like. Yeah. You know how... Um, well, another way you could say it, although this is not a very Buddhist way of saying it, but this is the Buddha's soul shining out. Now, you're not supposed to use the word soul in Buddhism because there is no soul, but you know what I mean. It's his inner being shining out. This is what the Buddha's inner spiritual life really looks like to someone who can see that. It's a little bit like, you know, you can get someone who's very physically beautiful, but they're not a very nice person. And so... When you get to know them, you no longer see them as beautiful. You can see technically they're beautiful, but you don't see beauty because their mind is not beautiful. You know that kind of experience? Well, it's the other way around with the Buddha. It's like he may have been an old 80-year-old 80, 80 guy and his body's falling to pieces. Maybe his face was completely wrecked. I don't know what it must have been like to live out in the out in the open air for 80 years, it must have had some kind of effect on him. Uh, but what he really looked like, or when, and when I say really looked like, I mean what he, uh, what he really was, if you could see his spiritual qualities, that is actually what he looks like. I remember uh, years ago when I had uh, a crisis in my spiritual life and I left the movement I went to live in Langochlan after about two years I decided I'd just go on two days of an order convention meeting order members in Norfolk so I went and um, it was an amazing experience because I'd been for two years living more or less on my own well yes on my own completely but I didn't really have any friends in Langochlan working for the Inland Revenue and um, I got very very lonely but when I went to the order convention I had a very striking experience of being recognised and recognising others. There was this kind of recognition of the values that were important to us, which I had not got when I was living in Langochlan. So there's that kind of inner recognition of someone else's qualities and values. So I think when the Buddha's described in this kind of way in these Buddhist texts, I don't think they're trying to make the Buddha to be like a god. They're just trying to describe what he's actually really like, if you could see through his skin to his actual spiritual values. So, ah yes, then we've got... Uh, so this is from a text called the Amitabha Dhyana Sutra. It's a Pure Land Sutra. And this is another Buddha, in fact. It's the, it's the Buddha Amitabha. That, in fact, is the Buddha Amitabha, uh, the Buddha of infinite light. He's a cosmic Buddha, not a Buddha who lived on this earth. And this text, uh, there are 16 uh, paragraphs that go into how you, or describe how you visualise Amitabha's pure land, Sukhavati, and Amitabha. So I'm just going to read you a little bit about um, visualising Amitabha. So the Buddha is talking to Ananda and Vaidehi, and he says, after you have seen this, and that's what he's just told them to visualise, next visualise the Buddha. Why the Buddha? So why visualise the Buddha? Because Buddhas have cosmic bodies, and so enter into the meditating mind of each sentient being. For this reason, when you contemplate a Buddha, your mind itself takes the form of his 32 physical characteristics and 80 secondary marks. Your mind produces the Buddha's image and is itself the Buddha. I'll just repeat that because it's very, very important, I think. Your mind produces the Buddha's image and is itself the Buddha. The ocean of perfectly and universally enlightened Buddhas thus arises in the meditating mind. For this reason, you should single-mindedly concentrate and deeply contemplate, concentrate and deeply contemplate the Buddha, Tathagata, Arhat, 
and perfectly enlightened one. So, how do you visualize the Buddha? Now, I'm just going to give you a taste. Ananda, you should realize that his body is as glorious as a thousand million coatees of nuggets of gold from the Jambu River of the Yama Heaven, and that his height is 600,000 coatees of Nayutas, of Yojinas. Okay, coatees. Oh, here we are. This is good fun. It's good to know this. Uh, so, his height is 600,000 coatees. A coatee is 10 million. Of Nayutas, uh, 100 billion. Uh, of Yojinas, seven or nine miles, right? Multiplied by the number of the sands of the Ganges. Yeah, number of grains of sand in the Ganges. So can you imagine how big that is? It's approximately the size of the universe, I would say. And this is something that the, some Buddhist texts used to do. The writers of the texts used to do it in order to get a really good kind of idea of just how big the Buddha was inside his eternal life, how big his enlightenment was. They used to describe these ginormous Buddhas that are so big you can't even imagine them, that we would fit into a pore of their skin. Or sometimes they say that uh, the whole universe fits into the pore of the Buddha's skin. You get this idea of absolute magnanimity, hugeness. The white tuft of hair curling to the right between his eyebrows is five times as big as Mount Sumeru. That doesn't say a lot because you don't know how big Mount Sumeru is, but it's a massive mountain, bigger than Mount Everest. So five times as big as that, just that little bit there. His eyes are clear and as broad as the four great oceans. Their blue irises and whites are distinct. From all the pores of his body issues forth a flood of light as magnificent as Mount Sumeru. And it goes on like this. Oh, here's a good one. His aureole, that's the uh, halo around his head, isn't it? His aureole is as broad as a hundred coties of universes, each containing a thousand million worlds. So the idea here is that you literally try to visualise that size, the Buddha being that size, if you can possibly imagine that. You can imagine what that does to your mind, can't you? Yeah, it just really opens your mind up. But the most important thing, I think, is this idea that when you're visualising the Buddha, your mind produces the Buddha's image and is itself the Buddha. So a way of moving towards Buddhahood is to imagine the Buddha, use your imagination. And I think what a lot of these texts are doing, these Mahayana texts, they don't really set forth doctrines. They're not really texts that you can learn how to live by. They don't tell you how to practice the five precepts or how to practice meditation. Because for them, that's all understood. You've already read the Pali Canon. You know the Pali Canon. You know what to do to practice. But now, what these texts try and do is, is to get you to practice, but within this massive sphere, much bigger sphere of existence than you were before. So, so far, so good. Um, don't know if any of you are not liking any of this, but now the next thing, the next couple of things, it might hit upon a few things. I don't know, let's see. This is from a, an early text, almost as early as the Pali Canon, the Mahavastu. The Mahavastu in three volumes. Uh, it's said to be the Vinaya, the book of discipline, of a, a sect, a Buddhist sect, called the Lokuta of Ardins, who are an offshoot of the Mahasangikas. Now, this is all very technical. Um, but if it's a Vinaya, it's an amazing Vinaya. I'd like to have belonged to this school because there's really not very much about what you should and shouldn't do. It's a very, very magical kind of text. And it's the Lokuta of Ardins, uh, or the Lokuta of Arda school. Varda means school or doctrine. Lokuta, loka is world. Utra is above. So it's the above the world school. Yeah. 
or sometimes it's translated the transcendental school. And what this means is that the Lokutaravadins believed that the Buddha wasn't really a human. Or he was a human, but he was a magical creation, yeah, to look like a human. So everything that he did, he was born, he grew old, he ate, he died. All those things were just a show, yeah. So let me read you a couple of sections. Um, the Buddhas conform to the world's conditions, but in such a way that they also conform to the traits of transcendentalism, the Kutuavadism, you could say. The preeminent men practice the four postures of the body, walking, standing, lying, sitting, sitting. Though no fatigue comes over these men of shining deeds. You get the language there, don't you? The preeminent men, these men of shining deeds. It is true that they wash their feet, but no dust ever adheres to them. Their feet remain clean as lotus leaves. This washing is mere conformity with the world. And it goes on like this. It is true that the Buddhas bathe, but no dirt is found on them. They clean their teeth and perfume their mouths with the fragrance of the lotus. They put on clothes, the cloak and the three robes, all in conformity with the world. So everything that looks like they're just a human being is just a way of conforming with the world. Actually, they're not. So this obviously, for some people, I was talking about this to uh, somebody I live with, Vilasavadra, and he said, oh, I have an instinctive response to that. No, no, cannot be. That's not the Buddha. But that is how some early Buddhists saw the Buddha, that he wasn't really a human being at all. He was transcendental. Yeah. And later on, a few hundred years later, you get the White Lotus Sutra with a rather shocking idea. Um, Now, has Shakyamuni Buddha come forth from the palace of the Shakya clan and seated at the training place of enlightenment, not far from the city of Gaya, has attained perfect enlightenment? But, my good sons, since I veritably became Buddha, there have passed infinite, boundless, hundreds of thousands of myriads of Kotis, of Nayutas, of Kalpas. A Kalpa is a an aeon. It's a very, very large time. So how many Kalpas? Um, infinite, boundless hundreds of thousands of myriads of Kotis, of Nayutas, of Kalpas, since he gained enlightenment. It wasn't just a few years ago. It's a long, 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 long time ago. So um, he goes on like this for some time, but I don't think I need to read you all this. That's, that's more or less... Yeah, that's all I need to read you there. So here, although, you know, we've been thinking, haven't we, that the Buddha was a man, lived in India two and a half thousand years ago. He gained enlightenment when he was about 35, we think, 29, according to some sources. And then he taught for another 40, 45 years until he died at 80. That's the way we think of him. But what the Buddha's saying here in the White Lotus Sutra is, actually, I gained enlightenment an infinite uh, number of well, infinite, infinitely long ago. So you get this idea of the eternal Buddha. The eternal Buddha. So this is all uh, under the, the basic heading of the cosmic Buddha. You could say that the, the cosmic Buddha in Mahayana Buddhism is uh, a shining being, always made of gold, like this one. Later on, you get this idea of Buddhas being different colours, red, white, green, etc., but in the texts, in the Mahayana texts, they're always gold. A Buddha is always gold. And they're shining outwards. And their, their light shining from them is going out, having an effect on the world, having an effect on the universe. That's the way Mahayana Buddhists more or less see the Buddha. Uh, but there's another way, another way of looking at the Buddha. And I want to look at this now. 
And this comes, we'll go right back again to the Pali Canon, the ancient earliest texts. And there's the whole question of what happens to the Buddha after death. What does happen to the Buddha after death? And a number of people ask the Buddha about this. And there are a number of his answers. They're more or less all the same. All his answers are more or less the same. What happens to the Buddha after the death? There are four possibilities, according to ancient Indian philosophical categories. The four categories are, after death, the Buddha carries on living. Or he, he dies completely, he's annihilated. Yeah, those are two categories, and you might think, hmm. How many more categories can there be? Well, there are two more. One is he both he carries on both living and he's annihilated at the same time, or he's neither <coughs> living nor annihilated. To understand this, you'd have to go right back and study ancient Buddhist uh, philosophy, which we're not going to do, obviously. But anyway, what the Buddha says, the important thing here is the Tathagata is liberated from reckoning, from calculating, you could say, in terms of material form. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the ocean. Yep, that's, that's what happens with the Buddha after death. A little bit more here. The term reappears does not apply. Once he's, di- once he's died, he doesn't reappear. The term does not reappear does not apply. The term both reappears and does not reappear does not apply. The term neither reappears nor does not reappear does not apply. So it doesn't leave you, it doesn't leave a mind anywhere to go. You're completely stumped. What on earth can he be talking about? And quite a few people in the Buddha's day, you know, left scratching their head thinking, what on earth can he mean? So uh, now we come to another part of the Buddha, and here, you could say this part of the talk isn't so much about the cosmic Buddha as the Buddha principle. I'm just going to make sure I've got the right reading first. Yeah, so there's a famous verse from the Diamond Sutra, an early Mahayana sutra text, where um, somebody called Sabut is asking the Buddha a number of questions and at some point he says um, or actually uh, the Buddha asks Subhuti a question he says what do you think Subhuti is the Tathagata to be seen by means of his possession of marks those 32 marks and Subhuti replied no indeed Lord and the Lord said if Subhuti the Tathagata could be recognised by his possession of marks then the universal monarch would be a Tathagata do you know that in when the, the myth has it that when the Buddha was born, a soothsayer went to see the Buddha and he told the Buddha's father that, hey, this, this baby is really special. He's either going to become a universal monarch, a ruler, or he's going to become a Buddha, one of those two. And they both, both the universal monarch and the Buddha have the 32 major marks. So if you could recognise a Buddha by the 32 major marks then actually you're not sure if it's a Buddha or a universal monarch. There's a big difference. hope this isn't too technical, really, for you. But the main thing is, um, what the Buddha then says is, those who by my form did see me, and those who followed me by voice, wrong the efforts they engaged in. Me, those people will not see. From the Dharma should one see the Buddhas. From the Dharma bodies comes their guidance. Yet, Dharma's true nature cannot be discerned, and no one can be conscious of it as an object. So this is a very different territory, isn't it? Talking about the Buddha in that kind of way. Those who by my form did see me, If you had met the Buddha and you thought of him as that human being, then you haven't really seen him. So this goes back to the point I made earlier about what the Buddha really looks like is this shining Buddha. So those who by my form did see me and those who followed me by voice. 
wrong the efforts they engaged in, me, those people will not see. From the Dharma should one see the Buddhas. From the Dharma bodies comes their guidance. Yet, Dharma's true nature cannot be discerned and no one can be conscious of it as an object. So here we, we get into a kind of mysterious realm that you cannot see or hear the Dharma. Yep. You can't really see or hear it. And nor can you really see or hear the Buddha. So, we're going to move on to Nagarjuna. How many of you have heard of Nagarjuna? Great. I was training there last six weeks in India. Training there, in his college. Well, yeah. oh, very good. So you might know these then, these bits. Okay, so um, I was very lucky this week because uh, I was just reading up a bit on this and reading around it. And um, where did I read? Ah, it was Paul Williams, his book Mahayana Buddhism. He mentioned four hymns to the Buddha by Nagarjuna and he quoted one of the verses. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So I googled and I came up, I found two of them on the net translated in, uh, into English. So um, this one's called the, the Paramatha Stava, Stava is verse, the Paramatha Stava. Um, so here's Nagarjuna, <coughs> who is a great Buddhist philosopher, the greatest. Sometimes he's called the second Buddha, great philosopher. But he was also very uh, devotional too. And he says, you talking to the Buddha, you are neither existent nor non-existent, neither eternal nor non-eternal, neither permanent nor impermanent. Abeyance to you who are beyond any dualism. He goes on, no colour is found in you, neither green nor red nor scarlet, neither yellow nor black nor white. Obeisance to you who have the nature of colourlessness. You are neither big nor small, neither long nor spherical. You have reached the stage of immeasurability. Obeisance to you who has the nature of immeasurability. You are neither far away nor near, neither in space nor on earth, neither in samsara nor in nirvana, obeisance to you who resides nowhere. It's incredible, isn't it? This, he's reached a stage of immeasurability. Uh, amita, the word for uh, immeasurability is amita, as in amitabha, uh, immeasurable light. And uh, it means two things. It means massively huge, so big that you can't measure it. But it also means something that's so subtle that no measuring instruments can be applied to it. It's something that cannot be compared to anything else. There's a nice little, just by the by, there's a nice little verse here, verse 9. Thus, praised, let you be praised. Or, is he praised? When all dharmas are without essence, who is praised? Or by whom can he be praised? Yeah. If there's no Buddha, there's no real Buddha, then you cannot praise him. Then the next one, I'm not sure I can pronounce this. It's something like Nairalpamya Statva. Verse 12. Although you prevail everywhere, yet you are born nowhere. Although you manifested birth in Lumbini, yet your body is the nature of Dharmakaya. So here we get this idea again of you manifested yourself in conformity to the world, you might say. Yet your body is the nature of Dharmakaya. O Lord of the stages, it is indeed inconceivable. Later on he says, even if one sees the form, it is not the seeing. If one sees the Dharma, it is then well seen. But Dharmata cannot be seen. Dharmata is uh, the nature of the Dharma. You, could, you almost could call it naturalness. That cannot be seen. Your body is neither hollow nor has any bone, flesh and blood, as mortal beings have. Still, 
you have manifested a body just as the rainbow in the sky. It is not possible that you have hunger, thirst, impurity and disease in your body, but you showed as worldly activities according to worldly convention. So here we are again with this idea of just conforming to worldly convention. O peerless conqueror, your Dharma body is eternal, imperishable and auspicious, yet you manifested the great Parinirvana to the world for the sake of trainees. Anyway, it goes on like that for a bit longer. Hmm. Okay, I've just got one more text I'm going to read from. So we got through those all right, didn't we? It wasn't too long. Um, and then I'm going to say a few words. But first I need to find the text. Okay, again, I'm going back to the Vimlakirti Nidesha, which is my favourite Dharma text of all time. It's absolutely wonderful. Well worth reading. In fact, you can get a wonderful translation of this text, the translation by Robert Thurman, possibly the best translation. It's been translated into English at least four times. This one by Robert Thurman is really very, very good. And you can download it on the net for free. Vimlakirti Nidesha, Google it, you can find it there and you can just copy the whole thing for free. Wonderful. But here, um, this, here we are at the 12th chapter, which is nearly the end. It's 13 chapters long. So the 12th chapter. And Vimlakirti has gone from his house to Amrapali's Park, where we met the Buddha. Do you remember? Near the beginning of this talk, the Buddha's in Amrapali's Park surrounded by all those beings and his body shone and glittered and so on well Vimlakirti has gone to see the Buddha and the Buddha said to the Lichavi Vimlakirti noble son when you would see the Tathagata how do you view him how do you see him thus addressed the Lichavi Vimlakirti said to the Buddha Lord when I would see the Tathagata I view him by not seeing any Tathagata. Why? I see him as not born from the past, not passing on to the future, and not abiding in the present time. Now, Vimlakirti's answer is very, very long. It goes on for quite a few paragraphs, so I'm not going to read the whole thing out to you, but just a few of the things. He is neither the other shore nor this shore, nor that between. You know the idea of shores? The other shore is enlightenment, this shore is unenlightenment and somewhere in between. He's none of those. He is neither here, nor there, nor anywhere else. He is neither this, nor that. He cannot be discovered by consciousness, nor is he inherent in consciousness. He is neither darkness nor light. He is neither name nor sign. He is neither weak nor strong. He lives in no country or direction. He is neither good nor evil. He is neither compounded nor uncompounded. He cannot be explained as having any meaning whatsoever. No verbal teaching can express him. Such is the body of the Tathagata, and thus should he be seen. Who sees thus, truly sees. Who sees otherwise, sees falsely. So that's the last quote of the evening. Now we need to make come kind of sense of all this, don't we? So uh, what I've been doing is I thought I'd just read loads of stuff from the tradition and see how it how you responded, how you resounded. But now I need to help you to try and make some sense of it. And I'm going to do that with a, um, a doctrine uh, from later on, after all these texts have been written. Uh, it's a doctrine of a school called the Chittamatrins, or, or the mind-only school. And they came up with this doctrine called the Trikaya. Kikaya means body. And tree, you should know tree, three.
Now, can you can you all see that? You might need to move to see it a bit better. So you've got the three bodies of the Buddha. That doesn't mean to say that the Buddha's actually got three bodies. He's only got one body. But it's more like you're looking at the Buddha from three different points of view. Yeah. Firstly, there's the Rupakaya, sometimes called the Nimanakaya, but I'll come on to the Nimanakaya in a moment. But let's just stay with Rupakaya. Rupa is form, body. Yeah. So here's my Rupakaya in front of you here. And the body, the Buddha had a Rupakaya. Yeah. He was a human being who lived in northeast India two and a half thousand years ago, and he lived till about, he was about 80, then he died. That's the Rupakaya, that's, that's that particular way of looking at the Buddha. But then you've got the Sambhogakaya. Sambhogakaya is a very interesting word. Kaya is body. Samboga means, uh, it means uh, body of mutual enjoyment. Or it means body of bliss or glorious body. So why body of mutual enjoyment? It's the body of the Buddha that bodhisattvas see. In the, in the um, Mahayana Sutras, you get these bodhisattvas, very advanced bodhisattvas, and when they go and see the Buddha, this is the Buddha that they see. And it's the body of mutual enjoyment because both the Buddha and the bodhisattvas are enjoying that communication that form of communication, yeah? And it's the glorious body. It's the body of golden light shining out, filling the whole universe with light. And then there's the Dharmakaya. Dharma, you know, Dharma is uh, truth, or sometimes it's the teachings. And this is an interesting one because um, you didn't used to have the Sambhogakaya. You used to have just the Rupakaya and the Dharmakaya. And when the Buddha in the Diamond Sutra was saying, those who by my form did see me, they didn't see me at all. That's to say, if you just saw the Buddha as his Rupakaya, you didn't really see who the Buddha essentially was. It's the Dharma that you should see, not the Buddha's body. Yeah. And Kaya is an interesting word. It means, it has two meanings. It means body, but it also means... Um, Body in another sense, in the sense of uh, an artist's body of work. Yeah? It means things that are made up. So sometimes the Dharmakaya is seen as um, this. These texts put together, you could say, are the Dharmakaya. So don't look for the Buddha's body, look for his teachings found in the text. That's the Dharmakaya. But later on, Dharmakaya took on another meaning... And it meant the essence of the Buddha, what you might call the Buddha principle. It's that essential nature of the Buddha which cannot be seen, cannot be described. You cannot describe it because it's so subtle. Words just do not, cannot do justice to it. So you cannot see it. So in this sense, the Buddha's body cannot be seen. It's sort of lying behind what we can see and what we can feel with our senses. So you could say that if you were an ordinary human being, what in Buddhism is called a pathajana, one of the many folks, someone who isn't spiritually developed, when you met the Buddha, you would see his rupakaya. If you were an advanced being, advanced bodhisattva, let's say, you'd see his sambhogakaya, you'd see the Buddha as shining gloriously. And if you were fully enlightened, I suppose you wouldn't see anything. You would just see what the Buddha essentially is or was. So there's a bit more to say here about the Nirmanakaya. Uh, Nirmana means created, the created body. And the, you, you could probably see how this comes about. If, if the Rupakaya, according to some of these texts anyway, is just the body, the body, uh, the body of the Buddha conforming to worldly convention, then it's a created body. It's not really his actual body. It's just created for worldly convention. So you get this idea of the created body. So it's all pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? Um, but I think it has uh, real meaning for us as well. I'm hoping that you're getting that idea anyway. Um, 
because I think what it really points to, especially the Sambhogakaya, I find that a very interesting one. Sambhogakaya, some people say, is the Buddha who appears to you in visions or in dreams. So that when you're meditating, let's say you enter the first jhana, the second jhana, you get into this really highly refined mental state. And then some people, it sometimes happens spontaneously, they just see the Buddha. It's as if he's right there with them. And he's usually quite a glorious body. I don't know if anybody's had that experience. It's not that rare. It's, you know, a fairly common experience. At least once in somebody's life they'll <gasps> suddenly be with the Buddha. The Buddha will be there with them. And he appears in this glorious kind of body. And uh, you could say that it's the Buddha that appears to you in imagination. And I don't mean imagination in the sense of fantasy. It's not a fantasy cartoon-like Buddha. But imagination as a faculty that perceives reality. Uh, in the, what's, what's sometimes called the imaginal faculty. Uh, where you can, it's a bit like William Blake who uh, he said, uh, it's that famous conversation, isn't it, with somebody where he said, when you look at the sun, what do you see? And somebody said, I see a golden guinea, something like a golden guinea. And Blake said, oh, I don't see that. I see um, something like God and the, and the host of angels um, singing hallelujah. Is that, is that right? Is that more or less? Is that right? No? Anyway. And apparently he actually saw that. It wasn't he was making it up. That's the way he saw the sun, a very visionary person. But um, the imagination is something that we all have to um, really develop. And we're developing it very often as we're meditating, as we're opening up to ourselves, opening up to our inner life, our interior life. Our imagination will beginning, be beginning to grow. And you could say that the dhyana states are states of ever-increasing degrees of imagination uh, or deeper imaginings and so on. So when you see the Buddha, when you visualize the Buddha in this state, he appears to you as someone of amazing significance. Not just like a picture of the Buddha, but someone of extraordinary significance and um, meaning to you. So you could say that when you see the Buddha, the Sambhogakaya Buddha, it's, uh, it's a mixture of uh, jhana or samadhi, uh, deep concentration and insight. So I said, I think right at the beginning of this set of talks or when we were talking about the Buddhanu Sati that by recollecting the Buddha is a way of becoming the Buddha. And one way of re recollecting the Buddha is to contemplate his form, his Sambhogakaya form. And so when you see Buddha rupas and pictures of the Buddha, very often they're glorified. They're glorified. They're not uh, Buddha in an old robe. You know, he hasn't shaved today and, you know, he's looking a bit old. You don't often get pictures of the Buddha like that. They're usually young and there's usually light shining out from them. They're Sambhogakaya Buddhas. And by contemplating Buddhas in that kind of way, that tends to put us in that state of mind. It tends to open our imagination to who the Buddha really was. <laughs>